Feminist Coffee Hour. You can find us online at feministcoffeehour.com. You can send us an email at feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter at femcoffeepod. Today we have a really special guest, a dear friend of mine and friend of the podcast, Dr. Sarah Fraser. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Fraser. I'm a clinical psychologist in New York City. I do therapy, working with a broad range of individuals and issues, but with a special interest in gender and sexuality. So yeah, Sarah has some really cool dissertation research where she explored some of the relationships between people's sexual lives and the roles they play and the roles that they play in other areas. And I I think it's really fascinating work because in the introduction, there are a lot of cultural representations of sexual role play and a lot of cultural ideas about the people who do sexual role play. And there's not a lot of research or not as much research to back up these assumptions that people make. And so I'm really fascinated by Sarah's research in this area. So could you give us a quick background of what your study was about? The title was Taking the DSM out of BDSM. That is a play on the DSM, which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders that we use in psychology, and trying to reduce some of the pathologizing that goes into the way some people view BDSM, either overtly or kind of indirectly. There's been a lot of studies comparing people who engage in BDSM versus, you know, controls non-BDSM people in terms of overall mental health. And there have been sort of back and forth results on that. But what I was more interested in is kind of the more insidious stereotypes about people who engage in BDSM, that, you know, there's something about them, about their sexuality that bleeds into their everyday life. So I did an anonymous online study that asked people on various social networking sites and and through contacts in the BDSM community to respond to a bunch of personality measures, measuring their level of dominance or submissiveness or overall kind of power role that they take on at work and then asking them about how they identify sexually and what role they tend to take and their partners tend to take sexually as well just to compare that because I think what I wanted to look at was some of the overarching stereotypes about people who engage in BDSM, like either they're the same way in their daily life that they are sexually, you know, if you're a masochist one place, you look for kind of pain everywhere, like you can't differentiate that, or actually the opposite, which is also a prevalent stereotype, that you're one way sexually and you're the other way in your workplace. So if someone is, you know, kind of a high-powered person at work, they secretly long to be divested of that power. And these are actually pretty ubiquitous stereotypes throughout media representations, you know, literature. So I wanted to really take a look at that and see if there was any truth to either of them. Yeah, I would say, I feel like sometimes when you talk about high-powered executives, I feel like it's a really common joke that you know that they're going to professional dominatrixes and and being humiliated. It's like, I hear this all the time. 
I think it's a pervasive cultural stereotype. I was just reminded of the uh, Onion headline from before the 2012 vice presidential debate. Naked tied up Paul Ryan tells staff he can't prepare for debate unless they slap him harder. Yeah, or I think one of the the references I make in my paper is sort of like the, the like the mild mannered librarian who seems like very repressed all the time, and then secretly she's cracking the whip behind closed doors well that's like a porn stereotype i feel like that's a really pornified story of a mild-mannered librarian or that she she (laughs) wants to take power or control or something and she does that sexually it's not powerful to shush children (laughs) (laughs) yes i remember that one that was really good yeah so probably politics can also get into this but if we want to have a pleasant conversation, maybe not. Well, we're recording on <laughs> November 19th. And just this weekend, we were given a lovely story of, in air quotes, family values, conservative who was caught sleeping with a male staffer in his office. And because I don't have the story in front of me, I don't know whether or not it was consensual. But he was also reported to send non-consensually harassing texts to certain volunteers. And that would sort of go towards the opposite stereotype that, you know, you're this politician and you have all this power and then you just want to use all of this power on everyone all the time, regardless of context or consent or anything. And, you know, these ideas in themselves aren't necessarily like a negative stereotype, but it's there's a lot that gets associated with people who engage in BDSM. So did your research support these stereotypes or? It becomes... A reflection on them and not only a reflection on their character but a negative reflection on their character that there's something wrong with them that they do this that it's a result of abuse or like negative childhood experiences which may or may not be the case but you know that's not a healthy representation of sexuality and that's not necessarily a good way to link to sexual behavior so my research found a weak positive correlation between work power and sexual power roles, which just means that there was a small tendency that people who were more submissive at work also identified as more submissive sexually or more dominant at work and more dominant sexually. So there is a slight finding, but it's hard to extrapolate from that necessarily. I'm sort of hoping to find no findings. To just be like, hey, everyone is is different and sex is sex. But I mean, it at least proves there's some sort of consistency going on. I don't really know about the underlying cause of that since it wasn't a causal investigation. But yeah, so people have some sort of tendency to be more likely the same power role sexually as they are at work. Cool. So I wanted to ask you a little bit. Your title is taking the DSM out of BDSM. So in what ways, historically, has psychology been involved in BDSM? So how has it been described by psychologists, and has it been pathologized, depathologized, and how so? Yeah, that's a good question. I think psychology has a very long history of pathologizing sexuality. Kraft Ebbing published a compendium of sexual behavior sort of cataloging things, but it became like a listing of pathological sexual behavior. And that was, I believe, the first published instance of 
sadism and masochism being referred to as something pathological. And from there, it continued, I think, in psychology and from there into the general public's mind as a deviant behavior. I mean, Freud talked a little bit about that. And along with the other perversions, which are, you know, sexuality diverted from like genital intercourse. So anything other than that is sort of something weird, essentially. And that made it into the original DSM and later iterations, even up until today, it's still there. The most recent DSM, the DSM-5, tried to make it less pathologized. I think they added that there has to be clinically significant distress or the person has to identify it as a problem for it to be a problem to distinguish between people who just enjoy this behavior and people who have a problem. But there are a lot of issues with that as well. I mean, what counts as clinically significant distress? You know, if they're going to a therapist, does the therapist add this diagnosis to them or is it something that they're seeking help for? Are they seeking help for it because people are judging them or they're judging themselves for engaging this, in this behavior? You know, it's not as straightforward as, oh, we, we tried to minimize pathology and so everything's okay now. It's really intertwined and not always in a positive way. So it sounds like it could be kind of a circular diagnosis in that somebody could be perfectly fine with it, but having been exposed as doing this might be experiencing judgment in a workplace or in their interpersonal lives. And that distress could be considered clinically significant distress in order to make it a diagnosis. Yeah, essentially. I mean, the person might be fine with it, but there is a stress in hiding you know, an aspect of your life from other people, you know, if they're very involved, if that's something they do every day, every week, if they have like a 24-7 BDSM relationship, you know, if they're constantly having to censor themselves and refer to their partner as their partner and not their master or something, that causes a low-level stress and that might, you know, build up over time. So it's not the behavior in and of itself, it's having to hide this kind of maligned identity that can cause the problem too. Or, you know, there can also be like internalized stereotypes, like why, what is wrong with me? Why am I like this? This is sick. This is bad. That might not be from the individual's experience themselves engaging in this behavior, but from society, from other people's judgments, they could qualify for diagnosis based on other people's judgments of them, essentially. So that that doesn't seem that helpful. Okay, so I wanted to talk about the spectrum. And I know you said that for future research, you might want to break it down. But for your purposes, when you define practitioner of BDSM, do you define somebody who, say, went to a toy store and bought some fuzzy handcuffs in the same as somebody who, you know, considers like living it 24-7? Like, and what do you think about the idea that this behavior is on the spectrum? You want to talk about that? Yeah, for the purpose of the study, I really left it open to the respondent. So whatever it was self-defined, I think it was engaged in BDSM, either currently or formally, to a self-defined significant degree. So if someone felt that you know using fuzzy handcuffs was a significant part of their sex life and that, that qualified them for the study, so I took them as much as someone who was in a 24-7 relationship. And that was you know, just so I didn't impose any differentiation on people. 
and got as many people as possible for the study. But, you know, I think for future research, it would definitely be interesting to look at differences between those people if there are, because I imagine there could certainly be a difference in how much of their identity is intertwined with their sexual role in terms of power. If someone, you know, feels that they like playing with BDSM toys or something, they might not identify in the same way, or it might not be as much a part of their identity as someone who lives it all the time, which I think would just make sense. I would love to see future research on that, kind of parsing those out. One thing I noticed is that your study also didn't differentiate between, and I'm not sure that there is a meaningful difference, I'm hoping you could speak to that, between power, so more dominant versus more submissive, and then also association of pain with pleasure. Are there people who are more dominant in terms of power, but also associate their own pain with their own pleasure? Are they separate axes of kink? (laughs) Yeah, I think actually separate axes is probably a really good way of looking at it. For the purpose of my study and classification, I allowed people to identify as dominant or sadist and put those kind of together, but they are definitely different. You know, someone can be dominant and not engage in any sort of sadism or inflicting pain in any way. That could be more of like service oriented, like demanding someone do things for them, or, you know, they could inflict pleasure on someone too. If it's just about power and a power difference between the people, then any act can be a dominant submissive act. And so what are some of the other pairings that people could have? Does a submissive person necessarily enjoy the experience of pain? Right. So, you know, dominant people don't necessarily have to enjoy inflicting pain the same way that submissive people don't have to enjoy receiving pain. You know, they aren't necessarily the same thing. They tend to go together, which is why I kind of lump them together for the purposes of my study. But that's definitely not to say that they have to go together are the same thing. You know, someone, like I was saying before, could be a service related thing. So someone who's submissive could want to, like, cook and do housework for someone without receiving pain related to that. You know, it's really just about the power and who's in control not necessarily what they're doing. And so pain doesn't ever have to be a part of that. That's why, you know, BDSM is so great as kind of a catch-all. It incorporates all of these different behaviors and none of them have to be lumped together. Dominance and submission is a different aspect and, you know, sadism and masochism is a different aspect and bondage and discipline is a different aspect and none of them ever have to overlap in the same person. So what is bondage and discipline? That's more of the like tying people up, engaging in more physical corporal punishment, which can be painful, but doesn't necessarily have to be. So is there currently like a large amount of quality psychological research on these behaviors, in your opinion? There's a pretty large body of research that's definitely growing on examining the psychological characteristics of people who engage in BDSM, sometimes comparing them to people who don't engage in BDSM to see if they're, you know, quote unquote, healthy or, you know, how they score on psychological measures of pathology and things like that. 
And I think that definitely has been growing in recent years. There's some qualitative or exploratory studies on BDSM practitioners' experiences engaging in BDSM and what it's like for them, which I think is also has been great towards the effort of depathologizing and just understanding the experience rather than like imposing an outside view on it. So I think in general, the research has been coming in. There's probably not enough yet, but I think there's a, a good trend. So I was curious if you could speak to, and I don't know if this is part of your area of expertise, but I was curious to hear if you could speak to the way that the field of psychology draws a line between difference and deviance. So what is the normal human interpersonal variability and what is so far outside the norm that it starts to get a bit murky in terms of whether or not a behavior is healthy? Yeah, you know, I think people in general and psychologists are guilty of being people sometimes. On occasion. On occasion. So I think it's easy to conflate normative behaviors with healthy behaviors. So like what is the most common, what most people do is the average. And then when you get to the like extremes of that bell curve, that's when people start to look at things differently. You know, I don't know if there's enough of an effort to kind of normalize things that aren't necessarily statistically normative. There have been a lot of studies on the prevalence rates of BDSM, and there are huge prevalence rates of people who engage in BDSM, either with or without some sort of co-occurring disorder, or if they like meet criteria for significant distress. So it's actually not that non-normative, but it's still seen as something sort of on the fringes that not everyone does. And I don't think that that's addressed enough. And a consequence of that is that, you know, not being seen as a normative behavior means it is sort of looked at differently or looked at strangely sometimes. Mm -hmm. So based on your research, what kind of cultural embrace of this kind of difference? Like if you had your utopia on the one axis of your research, what would that look like in terms of cultural acceptance or the way that psychologists practice around BDSM? I don't want to use like extremes of labels, but like good therapists take people as they are and kind of try to put them in context and don't judge their behavior in and of itself, but sort of examine its meaning and utility and purpose for the individual. And that's what I would like all therapists, all psychologists, all people to be able to do. Ideally, that would be my utopia not judging activity just because it's not something that you would do or that your friends do, but kind of understanding that there's a huge variety of sexual experience and sexual interest and, you know, that a lot of the issues surrounding that come from kind of society imposing values on an inherently wide variety of sexual interest that I think is based in human experience. So I'm also thinking while listening to you, you're discussing consensual BDSM. So there's something very interesting about BDSM where it is inflicting harm on another person consensually. I'm curious about the distinction between consensual harm 
and non-consensual harm and different forms of what might be on the surface consensual but ties into different kind of power structures that are not consciously at play. Hmm. So like age differentials where both parties may on the surface consent but from an outside perspective it might appear to be more coercive based on the power structures between the individuals. Right. I mean, I think that's been on a lot of people's minds lately, just in general, in terms of news, in terms of politics, issues of consent. The good thing about BDSM when it's done well is that these things are discussed openly and consent is more of a yes means yes than than no means no kind of thing at the outset you know in terms of negotiating what activities are on the table and and what will be pleasurable for everyone you know i think that is different than a lot of other sexuality in general you know where things aren't really necessarily discussed ahead of time and there are a lot more subtle power differentials that are brought into play. But not brought in explicitly. Yeah, but not brought in explicitly. So I think the explicitness of these things in BDSM, when it's done, you know, well, properly, is what actually makes it healthier than some other sexual behaviors in general. Which is not to say that people can't abuse BDSM the way they abuse any other sexual relationship or any other relationship in which there's a power differential. That can definitely happen as well. I was going to ask what you thought a positive representation of, I guess, BDSM, but this this kind of like kink in pop culture would look like, because obviously, you know, people probably ask you about Fifty Shades of Grey, but I I think I see it in other stuff Mm -hmm. like superhero. I mean, people have all like often talked about Wonder Woman and how the, the man who created her was like really into bondage and there was just a biopic about him but even you know that's dc marvel stuff i think you know watching it been watching like the defenders and daredevil and there's a lot of like sex scenes between these powerful superheroes and i I just turned to my husband and i'm like they should have a safe word right there (laughs) just and i think sometimes i don't know if they're doing it on purpose but a, a lot of this stuff has this kind of undertone and i think it's just they're really for titillation or to make it seem like more interesting or funner or sexier but i'm not sure if that increases or decreases the stigma so i guess what do you think a positive representation in pop culture would or, or should be hmm that is a really good question. I think we should have more of them. I do think that there are a lot of undercurrents where people play with those power dynamics, but it's not explicitly like a BDSM relationship. And, you know, it would be nice if they would make something more explicit. But, I don't know, anything other than Fifty Shades of Grey? Like the opposite of Fifty Shades of Grey would be a good representation? I think Jenny Trout. No, you're talking about the opposite of Fifty Shades of Grey. The blogger and author Jenny Trout wrote a series called The Boss, I think. And she was trying to use a similar dynamic, but rewrite it into like a more like sex positive feminist kind of story. I haven't read it, but I read her blog and she talks about it a lot. So I don't know if any of our listeners have read it. You guys have heard of it. I haven't, but that sounds interesting. I would love to look at that. Um, I think maybe the characters in Secretary are also relatively positive, maybe slightly less feminist, depending on how you look at it. But it it is like an ultimately empowering relationship for the both of them that results in, you know, they wind up psychologically healthier at the end than they were when they started. So that's all I can ask from 
any relationship, let alone a BDSM relationship. Yeah, I want to go back to Fifty Shades. So we're all giggling as Fifty Shades, duh, bad. But if I'm wondering if you could speak to some of the ways that Fifty Shades either added to stigma or showed an unhealthy practice of BDSM. I read Fifty Shades while I was writing my dissertation for academic purposes. Doing some research. Doing some research. <laughs> for science. <laughs> And in general, throughout most of the book, I didn't really have a problem with the depiction of BDSM, surprisingly. They hit a lot of decent points, like they discussed the nature of the relationship, they talked about limits. I mean, it's not an instruction manual, but it gives you a good flavor of how to conduct a relatively responsible relationship. The problem is, in these stories, in this series, is that there is an a direct one-to-one relationship between BDSM activity, specifically engaged in by the character of Christian Grey, and his abusive traumatic past, and that it is directly linked. It is called out by himself and other characters that he is interested in BDSM because of these traumatic experiences that he had. That is inherently a pathological thing, that his interest in sadism and dominance are based on these years of trauma and the main character Anastasia Steele takes it upon herself to break him of his quote-unquote like need to engage in BDSM because of this trauma and that she's going to heal him with her love. So that's the Cliff Notes version of what is extremely problematic about that. This actually, it definitely speaks to what I was talking about before in terms of like clinically significant Mm -hmm. distress due to internalized stigma. He is just full of self-loathing regarding BDSM, regarding himself as a person. It's all kind of just one big ball of self-loathing inside of him. There's this great line that I tried to use as one of my section headings in my dissertation that my advisor vetoed, where he he frequently refers to himself as 50 shades of fucked up. And that is because of his trauma and his interests and knowing that he is enacting something with these women that he dominates and engages in sadomasochism with and hating himself for that the whole time. It's actually quite sad. The sad part is at the end of the first book, the Anastasia Steele character finally engages in some more straight S&M with him, which is before it was a little bit more tame and a little bit more in terms of like DS power dynamics. But in this, she allows him or actually requests that he engage in some sadism with her and then completely flips out on him even though she requested this and asked for it and you know he warned her and and discussed it with her and did everything that he really should have done you know and was completely forthright with her the whole time she still entered into this and flipped out on him and made him feel extremely ashamed and he agreed with that shame that he was a bad person for doing these things and wanting to do these things. That's the danger in the Fifty Shades of Grey phenomenon to me, like this reinforcing that link between pathology and BDSM. That shouldn't be, essentially. 
So what might a healthy interaction around BDSM look like if one party is into it, the other one's not, and the one who isn't agrees to it, but then while it's happening, realizes that it is not for them Mm -hmm. and that they're not enjoying themselves? What would like a healthy response look like? That is the whole idea of having a safe word, right? Which is also what they included in the novel. And she did not use her safe word when she was in the middle of this scene that she started to not enjoy. She just freaked out at him at the end and broke up with him. So that is not a healthy way of managing that situation on either end. That happens all the time, right? Especially if you're trying to be good giving in game. If if one individual is interested in doing something and the other person is open to trying it, you discuss, you know, what that might look like and you assign a safe word so you can shut it down if it starts to become unenjoyable. And so if you're engaging in something and it's not really working out, it's really, you know, not pleasurable or enjoyable, they really want to stop, you use your safe word And then it shuts down and you guys, you know, talk about it if you're at a place emotionally where you want to talk about it at that time or you engage in some aftercare and cuddle and feel better and then talk about it later maybe. But it's not to continue doing whatever it is that you're doing. It's about reinforcing, you know, the love and value of each other and respect towards each other. What is aftercare? Um, So aftercare is... After engaging in a BDSM scene or activity, it can be cuddling, it can be, you know, just something kind of pleasurable and warm, reaffirming that there is caring, especially if the scene went to some dark places where, you know, there's some humiliation going on. It's fun to explore those things. That's the whole point of BDSM, like going to those places that you wouldn't normally go to in a relationship. But getting back to the real world without damage sometimes involves reinforcing, you know, the love that you have for each other and the respect that you have for each other. So that could be cuddling, that could be, you know, talking or not talking that could be watching something together it's kind of dependent on you know the relationship but it's really about reaffirming that bond between you and that you care about each other and that you both have value again it sounds like bdsm can be an emotionally intense kind of way of practicing sexuality and it sounds like aftercare is like more of a kind of bonding or kind of It's a bonding and it's like a a leveling off kind of you can you can get into some really intense head places in terms of, you know, extremes of either being dominant or submissive. You know, it can be hard on either partner and you want to be able to come back to that and kind of have like a, a safe place to land. That's essentially what aftercare is supposed to be for. Dan Savage describes BDSM for people who call in and are like, what is this? What is going on? My partner wants to try it. Does that mean that they're like messed up in the head? And he'll say, it's a game. It's cops and robbers for grownups with your pants off. And do you think that's a good description? Or do you think it's more serious than that? Or do you think it varies on the person? Which is where I'm leaning after thinking about it for a minute. But Yes to both. And it depends on the person. I mean, it can absolutely be fun. It is referred to as play sometimes it's kind of adult playground you dress up sometimes you play out these roles 
in this very bounded space where it's safe to do so. And it can be fun. It doesn't always have to be incredibly intense. It can be kind of lighthearted, depending on the people, depending on what you're after. And then it can also be like very intense and go to some very like deep places for people who want to go there. It's like with any sort of sexuality, it's sort of what you want to get out of it and what you put into it, right? It's an interpersonal interaction. Yes, it is. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Who knew? Um, so you mentioned secretary and we talked about Fifty Shades of Grey. And I feel like the common depictions that I see of BDSM in popular media are a dominant man and a submissive woman. And I was wondering if you could speak to maybe the prevalence of those roles in gender and if there's a research on that. And then also, you know, I think of these movies as like for titillation, not for education. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering, like, I see a gender dynamic that gets repeated in non-BDSM movies as well of dominant men and submissive women. And I'm wondering... I guess, is this an issue of representation of gender roles in general? Or do you think that this is something that gets recreated in BDSM play? There have definitely been prevalent studies. I don't have the numbers offhand, but I think depending on like the region, depending on you know what community you're looking at online, it's probably about even. I think there might be more depictions of dominant male and submissive female in the media because maybe that's what more people are comfortable with or that aligns with more typical like gender norms not that there's anything wrong with that but that's just sort of you know I guess it's more easily digestible for some people than having a woman be in power and a man be submissive you made a really great face when you said that. <laughs> <laughs> our, our listeners can't see. Like, God forbid. <laughs> um, there's actually, okay, so in terms of good media portrayals of BDSM, this just reminded me, there's this movie on Netflix. It's ridiculous and like good, bad, but I love it. And actually it ends on a really good feminist note where is not where it seems to be starting from, but it's called Bound. Mm-hmm. And it stars Charisma Carpenter. Amazing. Yes. Cordelia. <laughs> Cordelia, <laughs> if you're into Buffy. And it's about this older woman who... Wait, does Cordelia play the older woman? She's the older woman. <sighs> I don't know if I can Also problematic, <laughs> her father in the movie is played by someone who's only 10 years older than her. It's, okay. it's complicated. But... <laughs> They're potentially problematic, but I don't I don't know if I want to spoil it for you. Maybe I'll just spoil it for you. Spoiler alert for Bound, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so it starts off as kind of a, not a parody, but like a takeoff on Fifty Shades. But it's her as an older woman with a younger man who's dominating her. And that relationship is actually unhealthy and not a good depiction of BDSM until the end when she comes empowered. And then she becomes dominant and starts dominating this other man in a more age appropriate man in a like very healthy and empowering way. It's really good. I recommend it if you can get through the beginning where it's kind of painful to watch, not, not to experience, way. not in a sexy way. <laughs> that comes to mind as a depiction of a woman being dominant over a man in a really actually good, well established way but that's 
probably in the minority of depictions of BDSM. I think most of the time in pop culture, the dominatrix is a joke if it's a woman. It's not supposed to be interesting or sexy or educational or anything like that. It is more of a joke, generally, when women are depicted in media as dominatrixes. I'm trying to think of if there are any similar kind of depictions of men as being dominant that where it's sort of like a punchline or funny and nothing's coming to mind I don't know if if you can think of anything but it's sort of like you know woman leather clad cracking a whip people laugh or they get freaked out or something but either way it's sort of like for shock value and being funny I also you know hearing your description of bound I can't help my critique lens I'm sorry but you know I think it sounds cool but it does seem to follow this trope of we're only allowed to see women own their power after we've seen them broken down Mm. and humiliated Mm mm-hmm Yeah, I mean, I will defend this movie. Since you haven't seen it, maybe we can watch it later. So it's sort of, she's not just broken down in the movie. It's sort of like her life she's been kind of broken down. So I see it as sort of like an arc towards her owning her sexuality and the power inherent in that and the power in her. Even outside of her sexuality, it kind of extends to her, you know, getting new business and like really owning her things. And so... I guess maybe it does take her down to this deeper level of being broken down, but um, then there's like this amazing flourish in her character. Cool. So, All right. I, I hope you see it as that too when I make you watch it later. <laughs> I had one more Fifty Shades question, if you'll indulge me. Even though it's a bad depiction of BDSM, do you think that it had any impact on stigma, either increasing or decreasing it? You know, I think there is a benefit in it bringing BDSM into more of the mainstream. I don't think we've ever had something that widely consumed in media that just completely, like, normalized, in a sense, this idea of people engaging in BDSM. I mean, they had all of these, like, first-timers kits marketed to people. I've had a number of discussions with patients who've read these books and it kind of gave them ideas or got them to re-engage with sexuality when they had sort of been disconnected from that before. I think there has been benefits in just normalizing or bringing into the mainstream what has previously been a fringe sexual experience. Yeah, I think there definitely has been helpful aspects to that. I don't think it's gone towards depathologizing, you know, like more extreme forms of BDSM. But I think, you know, sometimes greater awareness can lead to that over time. So hopefully that's where we are. I was thinking of a friend of mine who had a copy of the book being passed around her office, and she said that all her coworkers were liars because they all told her that they skipped over the sex scenes and they just read it for the story. And she said, these people are all liars. I can't believe it. And um, yeah. And then she came back in and she didn't know the origins of it, but she figured it out because she's a smart person. And she said, don't you think this book reminds you of Twilight? And they all said, no, it's totally different. And I said, no, it was originally based on Twilight as fan fiction. And she said, thank you. I thought I was going crazy. (laughs) But I cannot imagine reading that book for just the story and skipping over the sex scenes. That seems like such a waste. (laughs) (laughs) So 
So I have a question I already feel like I know the answer to, although you might have some extra insight. But for our listeners who may not have explored this question, does somebody who is interested in or who identifies as sexually submissive, are they interested in non-consensual experience? Do they enjoy non-consensual experience that has not been planned out ahead? Sometimes when you hear stories about sexual harassment or non-consensual touching, and I know that this comes up in a lot of non-consensual sex trials, that if a woman has been sexually submissive in the past, does that mean, uh, or if a man has been sexually submissive in the past, let's take gender out of this. If a person has been sexually submissive in the past, is it possible that they are basically unrapeable? <laughs> Pretty sure I know the answer to this. <laughs> but uh, do they yeah. enjoy truly non-consensual play? I think, you know, that there needs to be a distinction between, you know, fantasy and reality. So in fantasy, yeah, they might be interested in entirely non-consensual ideas. They might, you know, have this fantasy of being assaulted or harassed or something but the reality is something different and our fantasy is we can do anything we want because we can you know basically stop it at any point it's in our heads but that does not at all equate to what actually happens or what the person actually wants to happen in real life i mean there's non-consensual play which is between two people who you know have spent at least some time negotiating what can or won't happen. And, you know, with the addition of a safe word, you know, as an out, if it becomes difficult or traumatic in some way, and that is not at all the same as actually being assaulted or raped or being in some sort of non-consensual activity, because by definition, they don't have a say in that. They are definitely eminently rapeable. I don't think there's such a thing as being unrapeable, which is why you said it, but it's just, it's silly. Yeah, I guess I kind of wanted to get to the heart of, of this <laughs> no, you argument right <laughs> in one horrible word. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is there a way for a woman who is feminist to explore sexual submission, which is another question I think I know the answer to, but I want to hear your <laughs> expert exploration of it. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. You know, I think assuming that she can get past her own, you know, aversions or inhibitions to it, because it does play with those dynamics of power that, you know, women, like we were talking about, are more likely to be exposed to through their life, you know, being submissive, being, you know, disenfranchised from their own power. But as long as, you know, you can sort of get to a place where you can explore that, technically the submissive actually does have the power in the exchange. So you, as a submissive in this situation, would decide what you're comfortable with, what is acceptable, then in a safe way would be able to kind of give up that power while knowing that, you know, you're actually going to be okay. So it's based on trust And making the decision to, in a safe way, give up your power is very empowering and very feminist in and of itself. So, like, kind of just doing what gets you off could be empowering in and of itself? There is some literature on the therapeutic aspect of BDSM. I don't like calling it that because I feel like that brings up, like, calling it therapy means that, you know, something needs therapy so but there there is a I guess cathartic is a better word um aspect to BDSM 
where you can engage in situations that maybe in the past haven't been consensual or haven't been enjoyable, but you get to call the shots this time, essentially, and you can recreate it to your liking and kind of have a corrective emotional experience in a way. And, you know, that is inherently healthy. This was kind of more going back to your paper. I thought it was really interesting how you engaged with the feedback that you got from the participants. Do you want to talk about that? You know, I think it was really helpful, actually, to get a lot of that feedback. If I were going to move forward, do another study, a lot of the feedback was, I got a lot of critiques from the internet, from Reddit, mainly, about study design, about word choice, about what it seemed like people felt was I was conflating different aspects, like conflating dominance and sadism. And I think that that, you know, obviously wasn't my intention. But if I were to do another study, or if I were to, you know, go back in time and redo the study, I think, you know, that that's really helpful in terms of being more sensitive and aware of things that people might object to that didn't even occur to me, or any of my, you know, like, lab mates who piloted the survey questions and stuff ahead of time. My conclusion that I came to was in part that, you know, this is kind of a malign subculture. And, you know, me going in as someone doing research could seem to be sort of otherizing them, like as, you know, like some sort of scientist going in and probing. And that obviously could make people uncomfortable or more defensive or want to make sure that I was doing a good job in representing this culture and activity. And hopefully what actually came out of my study did that more so than how it was represented on my advertisements online. When you do a study, do you write all of the questions yourself? So for this, primarily, I wrote all the questions myself. I borrowed a measure from authors who made a measure whose names I can't remember now. So sorry, I can't credit them. That's where I got the dominance measure. So it was the workplace. So I had basically two measures for workplace dominance. And then I just asked people about how they identified sexually. And that was the sexual dominance measure, essentially. I used this other measure that I borrowed rating their personality. And then I just asked them a bunch of questions about how they acted if they were in kind of a dispute with a coworker or a superior or someone below them, you know, how they thought that would play out, which is more of like a, an assertiveness thing, but it was kind of a more behavioral based questions. And those were the ones that I wrote. And that was sort of just to make sure that the dominance measure was actually getting at some sort of dominance in this population, which it was. I had pretty high uh, reliability. So We're recording this in November, but we're probably going to put it up in February for Valentine's Day. So I was wondering if you had any Valentine's Day advice for our listeners. Based on the past few years, the next Fifty Shades movie installment will come out around Valentine's Day. So I guess my advice would be just be aware that that's happening. <laughs> <laughs> be warned. Not good for you. I've actually gone to see them. I've made for my for science and also I guess in our own like power play kind of thing I've I've made my fiance sit through those movies. <laughs> <laughs> I actually like the movies more than the books. They're a lot more self-aware and a little bit more tongue-in-cheek. They heard they had to rewrite the dialogue so it sounds like how people actually talk. Yes. 
because is that true? <laughs> the problem with just reading the book for the story is that you don't get really good writing in terms of story or how people talk. It's, it's a lot more playful, I think, the movie and the characters seem to have a little bit more of a good actual person dynamic versus like robots. Yeah. So, you know, you can see it with some friends and go make fun of it. That would be my Valentine's Day advice. Or watch Bound instead. Stay home. I'll, I'll plug that movie again for no reason. And if you do choose to engage in some sort of BDSM play, um, make sure that you discuss things beforehand and have a safe word. And don't use cable ties like they do in Fifty Shades because those can be dangerous. You can buy like leather cuffs or any sort of tie where you can cut it if there's some sort of emergency, like if your blood circulation starts getting cut off, cable ties are hard to break. So if there's something that you can break easily, that's fine to use. So that would be my romantic Valentine's Day advice for people. No cords. No cords. <laughs> no power cords. All right. <laughs> Thanks so much, Sarah. So where can people find you on the internet? I mentioned earlier, I'm a therapist in New York City, so you can go to my website, which is sarahfrasersid.com. I have a Psychology Today profile, and either one of those has my contact information for, you know, any follow-ups about this or anything. I'm on Twitter at Miss Cherry Pie, P-I like the number pie. And you can find me on Twitter at uh, Karen, U-H-K-A-R-E-N. Thank you so much, and uh, happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day! The Political Flavored Feminist Coffee Hour podcast theme song is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth. You can listen to her music at soundcloud.com slash Bridget-Ellsworth. And you can listen to her other songs there as well. And if you like what you hear, you can give her a like or even a follow.